Good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Matt Eldridge. I'm uh, the youth pastor here at Harvest Community Church, if I haven't met you before. Um, and if you're new here, welcome. We're super glad to have you here with us this morning. And before we dive into anyone, anything else, I need to know who here enjoys the show The Office. We got any Office fans around? Yeah, awesome. Good morning to you. Um, <laughs> If you haven't seen it, I can't recommend all of it, but um, one of the things I love in the office is that there's uh, pranks that go on all the time. And um, if you've worked in a church before or been on staff, um, we, we like office pranks too. Um, sometimes they get vetoed or shot down. Uh, I had like a smoke grenade one time that I wanted to throw in Alyssa's office while she was working, shot down. Um, Greg would not allow it. It was like a toy, I think. Um, but... Um, there's this office prank, I think, that keeps going on um, amongst Greg and Gary, where any time a passage comes up that's really uncomfortable, or a passage that's really hard, or a passage that talks about sin, they're like, do you want it? No. Do you want it? No. Let's have Matt do that one. <laughs> and I, I haven't found this out yet. I'm hiring a private investigator um, to see if that's actually the case, but... Um, That's part of, as we go through expository teaching, going from start to finish in a book, not just doing the stuff that makes us feel good or or the stuff that we want to hear in the morning, but as we go through the book of Exodus, this morning we come across a passage that, man, if I had to choose, I I wouldn't preach it, but all God's scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and correcting and rebuking in all righteousness. So, We're going through Exodus 22 um, and 23 this morning. And a couple months ago, um, if if you're just joining us or haven't been here, um, as we've been going through this series, uh, Andrew Hurst um, taught for the first time, and his sermon kind of set the stage of where we're at now as we're going through um, the book of Exodus, where God has been giving his laws, his good laws to his people for how they might live in right relationship with him to reflect him to the nations. Um, And Andrew set the stage where the people had just been rescued out of Egypt, and God's like, I I am going to meet with you on this Mount Sinai, and I'm going to share with you how you are to be my people, and how God uses his, if he was doing like a a speech in a class, or or even a sermon, how, what God uses as his hook to draw his people in, is he starts with this, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, Like, what a hook for these people to want to hear what this God has to say to him after that, to be hanging on every word, because this is the God who rescued him. This is the God that that brought all of the plagues to bring them out of Egypt. This is the God that parted the Red Sea. This is the God that was leading them by a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke. I am that God. And so now he's commanded their attention um, to give them his good good laws, his good purposes, his right ways for his people to live with him. And and our series has been titled Freed to Be God's People because on our own, as Christians today, we do not know how to be God's people. On our own, we don't know how to love the things that God loves. We don't know how to hate even the things that God hates. And we need God restoring and bringing us into right standing relationship with him. And he wants his people to be set apart and different than any other nation because they're to reflect the very nature of who God is. Um, And in this section we're about to cover, 
uh, a lot of these laws are regarding social justice. Um, and, and God, in the midst of these laws, is showing his own justice and mercy to his people and to the nations. And I do warn you, this section is PG-13. Um, like, I mean, it's not because I'm making it that way. Like, you read it, and it's like, shoot, PG-13, first sentence, here we go. So, if you still have your kids in here, and, and you'd rather them not be in here, um, that's, that's totally fine. But I'm going to read Exodus 22, starting at verse 16, and right from the get-go, first sentence, I'm talking about a virgin. So, here we go. If a man seduces a virgin who is not pledged to be married and sleeps with her, and she, bow- she shall be his wife. If her father absolutely refuses to give her to him, he must still pay the bride price for virgins. And I'm going to go all the way through the whole passage. So even, even, as, even as we're reading a big section right now, I'd just be encouraging you to ask God, help me see Jesus in this, because that's what I have to do even as I'm reading it now. Verse 18, Do not allow a sorceress to live. Anyone who has, a, who has sexual relations with an animal must be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord must be destroyed. Do not mistreat an alien or oppress him, for you were aliens in Egypt. Do not take advantage of a widow or an orphan. If you do and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will be aroused and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not be like a moneylender. Charge him no interest. If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, return it to him by sunset, because his cloak is the only covering he has for his body. What else will he sleep in? When he cries out to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. Do not blaspheme God or curse the ruler of your people. Do not hold back offerings from your granaries or your vats. You must give me the firstborn of your sons. Do the same with your cattle and your sheep. Let them stay with their mothers for seven days, but give them to me on the eighth day. You are to be my holy people. So do not eat the meat of an animal torn by wild beasts. Throw it to the dogs. Do not spread false reports. Do not help a wicked man by being a malicious witness. Do not follow the crowd in doing wrong when you give testimony in a lawsuit. Do not pervert justice by siding with the crowd. And do not show favoritism to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, be sure to take it back to him. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you fallen down under its load, do not leave it there. Be sure you help him with it. Do not deny justice to your poor people in their lawsuits. Have nothing to do with a false charge. And do not put an innocent or honest person to death, for I will not acquit the guilty. Do not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds those who see and twist the words of the righteous. Do not oppress an alien. You yourselves know how it feels to be aliens, because you were aliens in Egypt. These are the words of the Lord. Thank you, Greg and Gary. Uh, for this passage. Let's pray. Jesus, I need your help. We need your help to see you. And even if we weren't in this passage, Lord, in any passage in Scripture, we need your help to see who you are and how to live in right relationship with you. Lord, would our hearts be before you this morning so that you might do your work, so that you might speak, so that you might renew, so that you might bring life so that you might restore, so that you might redirect our ways away from our own and align them with your own, to align our hearts with yours. Because as your people, 
That's what we long for, God. We want to reflect you to the nations as well. We want to reflect you in Camas, Washougal, Vancouver, Portland. And God, we need you to be the one that, that cares for and instructs and heals our hearts in that so that we might do that. Help us, Jesus. Help me, Holy Spirit, direct my words. Amen. So right from the get-go, um, as I read this passage, the first thing that just jumped out to me was do not, do not, do not, do not. And, and growing up in a Christian home, um, I love my parents, and they did a really good job um, raising me to, to point me to Jesus. And, and whether it was just the language that they used or even just my own understanding of what it meant to follow Jesus or have a relationship with him, I thought a lot of what it meant to be a Christian was all the things that I could not do, right? I was very focused on the do not, but I didn't know the why behind it a lot of the time. I heard that I shouldn't get drunk, and I heard that I shouldn't have sex before marriage, and I heard that I shouldn't do this or that or the other, but I didn't know the why. And whenever we see a do not in scripture, we have to remember that God wants an inward change of our hearts to lead to an outward change of our actions. He's not a God that just wants to change behavior for behavior's sake. With the do nots, it's, it's for us to look at our hearts so that we might abstain from things that are not of the Lord to then in turn have our hearts created into things that are of God. And even Jesus makes this clear in the New Testament. You may have heard, don't do this, but I say to you, even don't do this or do this in return. That when we see do not, it's God is directing an inward change of our hearts to lead to an outward change of our actions. So in, as we go through this, um, I've kind of grouped up some of the verses that were alike in some regards. It's not just like completely in order, but of what God is trying to produce in the hearts of his people. So in the first section is do not create sexual expression outside of what God has said is good. I know everyone wanted to come and hear a 27-year-old talk about sex this morning, but I heard once from a pastor I really respect, and, and, and it changed my view as a teenager at that time of how I viewed sex, that God has placed a high view on our sexuality. He's placed a high view and value on our virginity as well. Because God declared with Adam and Eve that it was good to go and be fruitful, to go and, 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 and take hold of this gift that he's given us in the confines of marriage as husband and wife. And yet for God's people in this time, and it's not so different today, they took God's gift and they, they used and abused it in ways that he never intended and never created it for. And so for the law that we see in verses 16 and 17, the scenario is a man um, that has subdued this virgin woman and wants to sleep with her or has slept with her. Um, and, and God is saying, this is not right. I'm going to bring my justice into the midst of this scenario and make what was done wrong. I'm going to right that wrong again. And this is how it's going to go down. So it says that um, if a man seduces a virgin who is not pledged to be married and sleeps with her, he must 
pay the bride price. So the bride price is actually a practice that still exists in several cultures today, where in essence, when someone wanted, when a man wanted to marry a woman, uh, there would be a monetary value of, of either money, finances, or livestock, cattle, sheep that would be given in advance to the marriage to say, I am willing and I am willing to sacrifice to be with your daughter, given to the family that he was acknowledging, this, this is a sacrifice that I am willing to pay. There is a value on your daughter that I am willing to give because I want to be with her forever. But for the woman who had sex before she was married, that man could say, I want to be with her for a week. I want to be with her for a night. I want to be with her for five years. But then I'm out, right? I'm done. Similar to what goes on in our culture day in, day out. But God said, no, that is not my way. You will not devalue the gift that I've given to you, and you will not devalue that woman either. So what God does is, is even though that they're not pledged to be married, he says, you're still going to pay that bride price. What you've devalued by having sex with her outside of marriage, I'm going to bring the value back. I'm bringing that value back to her, to her family Because on her own, that woman in that day and age, in that culture, would no longer be valued as worthy of being married because she was no longer a virgin. The sexual union um, between a husband and wife is an expression of deep intimacy that isn't to be cheapened by man, to be cheapened by people choosing to sleep with whoever they want without a level of commitment that's inside marriage. And so God even in turn gives this, this opportunity this, for this man like, to still marry her in the midst of this if he, he has to humble himself and he still has to get um, the, the, wow, I'm blanking on the word, like the acceptance of the father. He still has to ask permission of the father and the father could say, no, you're not going to marry my daughter But in these laws, God shows his justice that what man has taken and perverted and devalued and not made right, he's not going to stand for it. He's not going to let man do that. He's going to make these things right. And yet, in turn, he shows his mercy in these laws by saying, where you stripped value, where you devalued, I'm going to bring value back to that woman. I'm even giving you a chance in marriage to work this thing out, and it's probably going to take years of counseling for the two of you, but to work this thing out between the two of you um, so that you might live in right relationship with one another and with me. So I want to talk to the singles in the room really quickly. Um, God has so much value for you and your sexuality and for your virginity, and we live in a world that wants to cheapen that that wants to strip that gift away. And if you're here um, and you're still pursuing God in that and and choosing to wait and to abstain from sex, continue on in courage and in strength in the Lord to hold on to that gift that he's given you. It's a good gift. And while people may call you prude, while people may say that you're um, so behind in the times, God says that this is a good and valuable thing. Or if you're here, single or not, and you're like me, um, who lived in sexual immorality and sexual sin, 
before Jesus for a long time, God brings value to the places that we've devalued. God is the only one that brings hope where we're hopeless. God is the only one that brings life where only death exists. In all the ways that I took this gift of sex and turned it into something that God didn't intend, he has restored in me time and time again to bring me to the spot where when I married Kathleen, there was a new life there. And it was only God. It wasn't counseling. It wasn't a conversation. It wasn't, not that those are bad things. Those are good things that couple with that. But Jesus produced that in me. And he wants to produce it in all of us. Even for our, our stumbling and, and, our, and our failures week in, week out, he wants to continue to bring new life where only death exists. Moving on to the next section do not take advantage of the weak. In this section, it, it kind of lists um, different people who in that time, in that place, would be known as weak. It lists the alien, and not like E.T. walking around with them, um, but the alien being the foreigner that was living among them. Many, many Egyptians joined with um, the Israelites as they left. Many people from other nations, as they continued uh, on their journey to the prom- promised land, would join with these people as well. And God said, do not press th- oppress the foreigner among you. Do not oppress. Don't make it hard for the widow or for the orphan that's among you. Don't oppress the one that you have lent money to or that you've lended money from. Don't oppress the one that you've borrowed even a coat from. And his reason for this, his reasoning behind why he says we're to show mercy to these people, that we're not to oppress these people, is I am the God who rescued you from Egypt. You were not able to save yourselves. You were the weak. It wasn't that long ago that you were the alien. You were the oppressed. You were the lowly. You were the downtrodden. You were the one without hope. And then I showed up, and I'm the one who gave you your hope, your strength, your new life. Don't you dare withhold that from other people who need it. Don't you dare, Lord, over what I've given you over the people that are weak. In turn, be like me. Show them mercy. Show them compassion. Show them the love that you received. Do unto others as you would have done unto you. As, as Christians, we should remember that we have been rescued, each of us, And each of us from different circumstantial things, but each of us from sin. And because we're rescued from that, because we've received such great mercy where we deserve justice, we should be so quick to show mercy as well to others who are oppressed, to others who are weak, to empathize with those who are broken. And God's not taking a political stance here on refugees as this is something that's going on in our nation today. But what he is doing is he's instructing his people to see people the way he sees them. He's instructing people to love people the way that he loves them and to do unto others as they would have done unto themselves. Because for these people in a time and in their culture, the weak were pretty much out of luck. 
the weak were going to be overlooked for ever having a job or a future. They needed something, someone from the outside to come in and show compassion and mercy. And God calls us to be that same people today. Because just as he heard their cries in Egypt and had mercy on the weak, he hears the cries of the alien. He hears the cries of the widow and of the orphan, even down to the man whose jacket was lent out to someone else, and now he's cold at night. God hears that cry, which is a good reminder for us that in our desperate situations, God hears our cry. In the desperate situations of your friends and family, before you ever heard their cry, God heard their cry. And in the monotonous and the everyday trial, the things that brings our hearts grief, that brings our hearts stress or anxiety, God hears our cries. Do we cry out to him in that? Do we turn to God first and foremost because he's the God that hears us down to it being cold in the Northwest and we don't have a jacket, right? Not that we should all just cry out about that. You should get a jacket if you live here. But God, he, he, he knows the intricacies of our hearts and he cares. And in turn, if God's people are to not show mercy, if they don't show compassion, these passages as we look on the screen make it clear that God will be the one that brings justice, that God will make it right. If you oppress these people, justice is coming for you. I'd much rather show mercy. (laughs) He says, I'll kill you by the sword. I don't fully know what that means, but I don't want it. (laughs) Whatever it is, God will bring about his justice no matter what, because he's both a just and merciful God. Next section has a smattering of, that's a fun word, smattering, a smattering of verses um, that may not seem like they correlate whatsoever, but it's do not dishonor God because all of these laws, right, we could put under this section of do not dishonor God because first and foremost, if any of these laws were broken, it was a direct rebellion against who God was. It wasn't honoring God by living as his chosen people. But in this section, um, God makes it clear that they are not to worship any other God. They are not to blaspheme. They are not to speak about God without reverence. They are not to dishonor God by withholding what he has given to them to give back to him. They are not to dabble or align themselves with any other power, sorcery, witchcraft, other than God's power. They are to be set apart different. They are to be holy as he is holy. When I think about um, in this in this text, it talks about a sorcerer shall not live. It, it just got me thinking about how with darkness, like as people of light, as people in the church, we we're not to associate ourselves with the deeds of darkness as we're about to read in Ephesians. And this, this impacted me actually recently. And, and please take this the right way. I'm not trying to, um, I'm not trying to make this sound uh, um, like follow exactly what Matt does. But I was watching this show on Netflix. And um, it wasn't one cat and I was watching. Just in my spare time, I'd watch it. And as I was watching it, there was just this tug in my heart of like, Matt, like this 
none of this is glorifying to God whatsoever. Like, none of this is good. This is just something that's kind of dark, right? This doesn't produce anything good in you. Why are you watching it? And I was like, uh, because I'm filling time. (laughs) Like, I had no good reason that I was watching this show. And so for me personally, I was like, I just need to be done with this because this show is all about anger, all about revenge, all about all these things that I don't want to be about as an individual. I don't want to dwell on these things. And so personally, I stopped watching that show because of this darkness quality. Now in turn, so growing up, I had a buddy um, that was not allowed to watch Sesame Street because there was a vampire in it. And while that vampire was not scary outwardly whatsoever, what really scared me about him is how much he loved math. That's what terrified me. <laughs> for all you math teachers, it's a little, you scare me a little bit too. Um, but for his family, they're like, that's darkness. Vampires, no good, dude. You can't watch Sesame Street um, as they're like swinging like down the street talking about how much they love one another. Um, But each of us is probably going to have a different filter or a different saying like, this is what feels dark for me and this is what feels dark for them. And our role and our job as Christians isn't to point out for me to say to my buddy like, hey, Sesame Street is too dark for you. You shouldn't watch that, right? No, but before God, we should lay the things that we do, lay the things that we participate in, lay the things anything that we do with him, whether it's what we watch, what we read, what we say, how we live, how we spend our time, what we do, and say, God, is this good? Is this of you? Is this good? Would you have me participate in this? Ephesians 5, 8 through 11, for you were once darkness, not just in darkness, you were once darkness, but now you are the light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Test and prove what pleases the Lord. Have no fellowship with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. I hope that I'm not so prideful that I could just put a stamp on something without ever testing it and say, this is what God says is good. This is okay for Matt to do. I should always run it through the filter of saying, God, is this about your goodness, your righteousness, your truth? Would you have me spend my time doing this? And at times God can say yes, and at times God can say no, because he's God and I'm not. So collectively as a church, do we put our very lives before God and say, God, I want to test and prove to find out what pleases you. Instead of me deciding my ways, I want to be aligned with yours. There's other laws that are listed that we're not going to get to in the next chapter. In in verse 23, it talks about don't spread false news. Don't just go with the crowd. Be impartial. Be good to everyone, even your enemies. Don't deny justice to the poor. Don't let money sway your integrity. And then in the previous chapter, don't eat meat killed by another animal. And guess what? Next week, there's more laws to come. Aren't you all so excited? Um... But the fact is, a lot of the reason that there's more laws and more laws and more laws 
is God's people couldn't help but to break his laws. God's people often found new ways around laws to still commit the very sin that was from their hearts where God had to institute new laws because their actions were not lining up with the heart that he wanted his people to have. And while these laws were often put in place, even the ones that we had today, so that they may not sin against one another, ultimately, these these laws were a sin against, a rebellion against God himself and God's character. And unfortunately, I, we have this same propensity to rebel against God, to turn from God's ways, to turn to our own, for me to decide this is what Matt says is good and right and true instead of looking to the God of our hearts. We have propensity to fall into darkness to associate ourselves with deeds of darkness instead of all goodness and righteousness. Sometimes I sin fully knowing what I'm doing, and sometimes unconsciously I have no idea until someone points it out or God reveals it later that I was in sin in how I treated someone or how I was living with the Lord. And I fail to live in a perfect right standing with God on a daily basis. I strayed in my own ways. And the Bible says the wages, the justice for this sin is death. That in order to make it right in our rebellion against God, the payment is death. Yet God is unchanging. And just as God both fully had justice and mercy for his people as he gave them their laws, He was full of justice and mercy in the most beautiful and extravagant and scandalous way when Jesus died on the cross, fully bringing together the tension of justice and mercy in a way that nobody saw coming. The one that truly followed God in every aspect the one that had right standing with God, that was fully righteous, that was holy as the Lord was holy, the one that followed God in all his ways, the one that showed mercy perfectly, the one that loved unconditionally, the one that saw the lowly, the sick, the needy, and went to them, the one that lived his life perfectly without sin. Jesus, God's only son, went to the cross to absorb the sin, to absorb the justice, to absorb the wrath. And even in 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, for our sake, he made him sin to be sin. Wait, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That Jesus who knew no sin in order to make it right for us to have access to the Father, a right standing before God, he took on the justice that sin deserved. And we received mercy. We once again received God's mercy that we didn't deserve what Jesus did. We didn't deserve access to the Father based off our own actions or the own state of our hearts. But Jesus became our right standing, our righteousness with God. And for those who believe in Christ's saving work on the cross and his conquering of the grave, God has given us right 
standing. What a beautiful picture of God's justice and mercy come together perfectly. But how do we live in response to this? Like, that's the big question for those who follow Jesus. How do we live in response? And in the book of Micah, he was asking the very same question. What do we do to please the Lord? Is it, is it through sacrifices, burnt offerings, through, through sacrificing goats or sheep or, or, or cattle? But he answers his own question in Micah 6, 8. He has shown you, O oh, oh mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. The same extravagant tension that was on the cross of justice and mercy together. God asks us to walk in those ways, to have that tension of of wanting justice, but acting with mercy, loving mercy. That we are to have a heart for the weak and the oppressed, that we are to take up their cause as our own cause for what was done wrong to be made right. But even though we live into the justice of that situation, Jesus also gives a command that we're to love our enemies, that we're to show mercy to the oppressor, that we're to pray for the persecutor, not just the persecuted to hold this tension of taking up the cause, the justice, the right standing, the righteousness, and to show mercy in that same vein. That we're to have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but we're to know what pleases the Lord, and yet in turn, we are to be light in the darkness. We're to know what is right and what is wrong. And yet we're not supposed to say what is wrong is over there and I'm going to live my life as far away from people who are living in those ways as possible. No, God says I am the light of the world and now my light will live in you. Be in the darkness. Be light. Expose what is dark and point people to the light so that light might increase. And Greg brought up this tension last week where he talked about how um, with a speeding ticket, right, if we get one and we get pulled over, we want mercy from the cop, right? But we see someone that's driving like crazy and we want justice. We want them to get the ticket. Um, There's a tension here because we have this propensity to say, I want mercy or I want justice for ourselves, but also for other people. There's causes or there's, there's actions that are done by others where we're like, I want justice. And in turn, we usually end up hating the people that brought about the wicked ways, where God in turn still wants us to enter that with this knowledge of knowing what is right and our right standing with him, but in turn to show compassion, to show mercy as he showed with us. So I had knee surgery um, a couple years ago, and uh, I tore my ACL playing basketball, 
And what's weird about tearing your ACL is that you can still walk around um, and feel like everything's okay for the most part, right? I could even, I felt like I could run a bit and felt like um, I could, I could um, do that with a torn ACL. If I tried to like shift to my left or to my right, that's where my knee would have given out on me. But I went and I, I had surgery. Um, I went in for, for the surgeons to make right what was broken inside of me. Um, and when I came out of surgery, uh, I said some really ridiculous things. If you want to hear them later, just ask. Um, but my knee did not feel better. I had just been cut like six times. And I remember the second day after surgery that while they had taken my hamstring and like made this new ACL and supposedly my nis- meniscus was healed as well, I remember punching the couch because the painkillers were not working, and it was like I felt every stab that that knife had put into my knee, and the pain was so real and so evident. But over time, as I healed, and Dan and Mickey and others got me ice even at like four in the morning as I was living with those guys, um, my knee started to heal. It started to feel like the healing was coming about. And even today, my knee doesn't feel exactly like it used to, actually. But I'm able to play basketball, um, and I'm able to play games on Wednesday nights with these students um, and do all the things that I love again. If God is the God that wants an inward change of our hearts, if he's the great physician that's going in to correct, to restructure what's been broken, what's been torn, what's been devalued, what's been fractured, when he goes in to heal that, that won't always feel awesome all the time. As we lay our hearts before the Lord and ask him, God, would you do surgery on my heart? That will not always feel like a walk in the park. Sometimes it will hurt a lot worse before it gets better but he's the God that promises to heal as we sang in that song. He's the God that promises to forgive us of our sins, promises us to heal when we lay our hearts before him. So with acting justly and loving mercy, what situations do we have in our hearts where we need God to come in and to heal, to start doing the work that only he can do? Maybe there's an individual where it is almost impossible for you to want to show mercy to them. Maybe there is a cause that just gets you so riled up. Or maybe there's a cause that feels like nobody else cares about it but you. What ways do we need God to come in and work out this tension of loving loving righteousness, loving justice, and loving mercy as well? And I'm so thankful to be a part of a church um, that more and more people are, are starting to align themselves um, with the weak and with the oppressed. I've been thankful for the last couple months that I get to be in a church where there's so many families that have chosen to do foster care and have chosen to adopt, chosen to reorient their lives to give the hope, the life, the love, the compassion, the mercy that they've received from Jesus. And I want to grow with people like that. So I'd ask us as we pray and we close today that we'd all lay our hearts before the Lord and say, God, what do you want to heal within me? What inwardly needs to be made new so that I might walk rightly with you, that I might live rightly with people?
Let's pray. God, we thank you that you're the God that shows mercy to us. And we also thank you, God, and this one's harder for me, but I thank you that you're the God of justice, that you don't let wrongs go unnoticed, go unaccounted for, go unpaid for, and yet, in your great love for us, you sent your son, Jesus. God, would we love getting to show mercy to others, but would we also know what is right, God? Would we know what is right? Would we stand for what is right and in the midst of it, have mercy in our hearts? Help me to grow in that, God, as it's easy for me um, to just swing one way or the other. And I pray for my brothers and sisters especially that are struggling with moments um, in their lives of not knowing how to show mercy or, not, or, or being jaded because of the wor- world and not knowing what is right and wrong. Would you lead us? In your ways, Lord, in your name, amen.